Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books and Latin American Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Ethan Besser-Frederick, a host of the channel, and today we'll be talking to Nicole von Germetten about her book, The Enlightened Patrolman, Early Law Enforcement in Mexico City. Hello and welcome to the show, Nicole. Hello. Thank you for having me. Nicole, before we talk about the book, could you tell our listeners a little bit about yourself and how you came to work on this project? Yeah, I'm a historian uh, who has worked at Oregon State University for um, just about 20 years. Um, I've actually had administrative roles for the last six years, but um, I was able to get this research done. And I, um, you know, with with the kind of at home time that we had uh, in 2020 and 2021, um, but it does actually draw from the research that I started for my book that was published by um, University of California Press in 2018 called um, Profit and Passion, Transactional Sex in Colonial Mexico. So that's when I first started to um, look at the, the the most famous source for, for the uh, Night Watchman in Mexico City, which is the Libros de Reos. So I started looking at those, I would say, probably around 2013 in order to um, see if there was any mention of, you know, sex workers on the streets of Mexico City. And so um, in reading those, you know, uh, with with those, it's kind of like notary archives. You have to read um, hundreds, if not thousands of entries to kind of find what you're looking for. So, um, which is great social history work that I love to do. and so as I was doing that, you know, I was thinking, um, you know, it's a really fortunate position to be in to have access to those archives that are so rich and to say, you know, this is like a whole a whole new project could come out of this besides the one I'm doing. And, you know, I had already started taking those photos with the help of my, my students, some undergraduates and a graduate student here at Oregon State. So um, I started to gather those and went back and gathered them more completely and to kind of build up to a book on a different topic, um, using those records, jumping off from those, but also using um, a, a lot of other records that we'll probably talk about over the course of this chat. What a wonderful example of the same archival sources being read or looked at a little bit differently, especially based on the historical context that you as an author and researcher find yourself in. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's right. That the, 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 um, it was a fortuitous uh, set of documents. You know, I probably started thinking about doing a, a law enforcement history, um, I would say in about 2017, you know, because of course I'd finished writing, doing the research and writing the, the 2018 book, you know, by then. And so I was just like, whoa, I got all this stuff. So um, I had I had started that in 2017. But of course, at that time, we were already aware of, of um you know, think, things that, that are uh, pertinent to police history. So it was already something that could be inspirational to, to give a more uh, contextualized, broader perspective in the Americas. Let's take a look uh, to begin with at your introduction. The introduction of your book presents us with interesting the this interesting figure of the patrolman, which is not exactly a policeman, but maybe an early and proto version of it. And the patrolman is personified in this book by Manuel Bernal, who appears throughout the book. Uh, 
And this personification is a way to understand the institution and concept of policia in New Spain, which is also distinct from police. Mm -hmm. Could you tell us a little bit about this new profession of the patrolman and what it can tell us about the history of law enforcement? Yeah, so the, the word policia is just derives from the word polis that many of us learned in social studies, you know, <laughs> elementary school, uh, you know, Greek um, city state, city government. So that that word just simply means good government in an urban setting, policia. And it's a rather simple origins um, that have come to mean something really complex, right? So I, I do try to make a point right from the very, very start of the introduction that, um, uh, you know, law enforcement is in, in no way new and there's multiple, multiple layers of law enforcement. So any concept of um, sort of distinguishing a particular branch of law enforcement as unique it is taking the history out of it and the layers and the complexity. So there's so many predecessors and uh, intersections uh, of different patrolling bodies. But this is one that, in, in my argument, is a step towards a bit more of what we would recognize as so-called modern. You know, and I don't use that term, obviously, as like a, a value judgment, but recent, you know, <laughs> simply, simply time frame, right? Um, so, so, yeah, it has a... Uh, it has some elements that lend itself towards what we now view as law enforcement or what we simply call police, right? So the term has become more specific, right? Referring to a specific branch of law enforcement as opposed to just general city government, which, you know, if you were going to use that term today, policia, you would include trash collection, you know, uh, uh, community, you know, um, better business bureau, <laughs> um, uh, regulations about, uh, maintaining your, your, the front of your house, you know, and of course, as a key theme in my book, you know, street lighting, all the urban infrastructure that we take for granted would be in, uh, included in that term. So it's interesting to think, I think just alone to think of the idea of modern police patrolmen as part of policia, good government. You know, so this is a, um, of course, uh, throughout the world, throughout time, there's been these kind of night watchman figures, right? And I like to distinguish um, these ones uh, that that I'm discussing, um, founded in 1790, because there, there's some aspects of them that are different from the conventional night watchman that we're very familiar with for, for Anglo history, both sides of the Atlantic. You know, the um, the parish watch, they're absolutely not the parish watch. They're absolutely not volunteer. Um, they're not run out of, um, you know, uh, they're not uh, kind of a neighborhood watch. They're, they're hired specifically, and they have a kind of proto-chief, the guarda mayor, the head guard. They're based out of city government, which is extremely modern. Because it's the idea that you actually have, you know, layers of bureaucratic authority that go directly to the city government. So in a sense, the taxpayers, that, that's all extreme. They're not paid by the gig, like um, the famous Bow Street Runners or, you know, bounty hunters or what have you kind of kind of thing. Um, so, so, yeah. And of course, uh, some, some of those, you know... Um, older concepts of, of law enforcement still exist. You know, we still have some of those things. So, 
they 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 still linger on from from ancient medieval times. So that this is one trend of having a um, kind of municipal body of of patrolmen on the city streets at night only, which again is not totally modern because until you have a a twenty four hour police force, it's not you know what we recognize, right? Um, so yeah, that that's a little uh, a, a bit of a start to to what um, this is about. I think it's very helpful that you, as the the historian, place it in this longer context, uh, because turning to your first chapter, the, the people in this chapter seem to really believe that they're inventing something brand new and, and quite transformative in the city. Mm-hmm. Uh, your first chapter titled Light traces the administration and controversy around the construction of lanterns in the cities, which is one of the primary tasks of these patrolmen. So could you tell us about this phenomenon generally of sort of enlightening the dark or colonizing the dark as a, as the term that you use and Mm -hmm. what you found to be going on in the case of Mexico city? Yeah, it's a really interesting history. And, and I was just trying to uh, skim the book before the interview. um, And I was remembering that when I wrote this chapter, I think it's, the first time um, that I can remember in my career that I simply wrote a chapter that was what I would call like maybe misusing this, but like a political narrative history where I just went through a series of connected reforms. So that was a very uh, odd experience for me as a, as a social historian to do that because that's basically what it is. There's a series of attempts to create public lighting over the second half of the 18th century Um and this is in line with what's going on in Europe. So if, um, as any, you know, vice regal uh, Novo Hispanic historian knows that they're, they're looking towards Europe, not, not of course, the United States, uh, which didn't exist, right? <laughs> so, you know, you know, kind of throws people off their, their stereotypes sometimes if they're not in this field as, as we are. Um, the, uh, but yeah, they're looking towards Europe who have, you know, various, major cities in Europe that, that Mexico City's uh, viceroy, the viceroy present there and, and the, the local government and the elite would love to emulate, you know, every, everywhere from the Netherlands, France, uh, to, to Spain itself, um, and who are developing public lighting. And that's from the viceroy's perspective, of course, the viceroy's are, are you know, European, even if uh, the one that that's under discussion here was actually born in the new world. He's, you know, a European aristocrat by descent. Um, and he, uh, you know, it's, it's a beautification. It's a point of pride for, for a viceroy to arrive in, in this era and make the city more beautiful, more organized, more clean by, by their, by their standards. Um, and so, uh, yeah, they, they, over the course of the, uh, second half of the late 18th century, there's a lot of negotiation back and forth with the general populace, the city government, um, various entities on how, how to light the city streets to, to follow what's going on in Europe and in their minds uh, to prevent the dangers of the night. And um, like you say, I, I drew from some um, European historians or historians of Europe who um, talk about this concept of like colonizing the night, which sort of um, goes back to the uh, early modern era and I think this fits really well with Mexico City, um, especially um, material that I've read that deals more with like late 19th century Mexico City, because that's a really strong urban history, uh, really excellent, many, many great books on that topic. And the idea that, you know, this city is is um, 
kind of just a set of villages, you know, it's almost rural in some aspects of it. And the elite uh, European influenced people, enlightenment figures, a uh, perfect word for it, um, want to have it be more European um, and uh, ha- have that the, the key concept is that it seems to them that at night the city is not enlightened. It's not European. It's more barbaric. You know, it's it's not governed. There's there's no government. There's no sort of imperial presence at night because of the way that the masses, including all ranks of society, um, socialize, you know, and this is kind of that, that almost a very familiar um, story of, you know, um, and I think it perhaps is a little uh, overdone at times because it's coming from elite sources that are obviously, you know, very politicized, but, you know, the idea that there's, uh, uh, you know, all kinds of physical embodiment on the street, that that's, that's somehow disgusting, you know, so, so that's sort of their rhetoric, um, that that they seem to really uh, enjoy <laughs> trotting out, you know. But when it when it comes down to actually looking at the day to day records, you don't see as much of of that as being the target. But you know, as is in, presented in detail in later chapters, it's it's the drinking culture that that's you know perceived as indigenous. Uh, it's it's just the the idea of order and strengthening the economy through you know these like different concepts of 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 work patterns and all this sort of thing com- coming out of uh, European reforms, you know, including the Spanish Enlightenment, the Spanish Siglo de Luces, uh, is like we part of that is controlling nightlife. So if there's lights, you know, this can be seen and as opposed to it being invisible and done in darkness. Um, but I do want to also stress that I, I think the idea of surveillance has been way over exaggerated because the process is so this is where, you know, there's certain like historiographic uh, mini debates that I try to address throughout uh, just trying to draw from what I read that I interpret a little differently, perhaps than previous historians in the last 50 years or so. Um but the, but the, there really is a debate uh, that I trace over that chapter chronologically regarding who's going to pay for this because there's efforts to have uh, individuals pay for it by you know people who own large large houses to ha- to install lights outside their houses. Of course, this like anything you can imagine today that only works if people are going to do it, and of course a lot of people can't be bothered, right? Um, so that they tried and tried and tried that, and it didn't work over decades, you know, and you can read the back and forth. Um, it's kind of interesting. And even, you know, kind of tried to enforce this semi-volunteer lighting will never work, right? Um, because they, they have this idea that they almost feel like it's the, the rhetoric of the elite is almost like it's a moral duty to, to have the city Europeanized. And of course, a lot of people don't buy into that at all. They don't feel uh, morally obliged. Like literally the wording is almost religious duty to do this. And and people just reject that. As anybody knows who's, you know, spent some time in um, Latin American archives know that it's not so easy to <laughs> make that kind of, you know, make, convince people to, to do that stuff, right? Um, and, the, uh, and so eventually uh, um, the idea is we simply just have to enforce it from the top. 
and pay for it through taxation, not pay through it through. And they even throw out a lot of different ideas, like small store owners might have to add a little tax to their stuff. And, and they refuse that with a lot of interesting debates, the tenderos, um, shopkeepers, so to speak. Um, but uh, yeah, eventually they have this tiny, tiny, tiny tax on the um, huge you know, cargo of flour that comes into the city. They impose a tiny little tax, and that's how they get a pretty solid um, budget to light the, to install about um, 1,500 lanterns around the central city and to set up these uh, lantern guards, you know, um, guadafaroleros. So that's how it works over the course of about 30, 30 years or so. Takes a long time. But yeah, throughout that entire process, there's protesting but by people who don't want to pay for it, right? Um, it, whether, you know, in letters or just not doing the lighting that, that, that they're told to do. So just there's, there's never a moment where people are like, you know, compliant to the lighting project, never. And, and I guess I'll talk about that later, preview of coming attractions in terms of how they react to, to the actual lanterns when, they, when they're put up. You know, again, it's not effective surveillance or, or somehow cowing the population because now they're brightly lit, which they're not brightly lit. It was also fascinating to me to do kind of a technological history uh, of lighting uh, at this era, which is, again, something new to me. You know, if you think about it, it's it's just fascinating to think about the history of street lighting, you know, something I never would have thought of before. It's just creating small pools of light, you know, maybe with a radius of five feet and they're strung along, like they're not strung along, they're just isolated, maybe every 50 feet or I'm not positive the precise detail it's in the book, <laughs> um, but the uh, 50 varas maybe, right? A older unit of measurement. But so there's total darkness in between each one. And then of course you have the lantern guard who's carrying his lantern so if he were like an incredible spy on, on the populace, which is the stereotype of like Paris police in this era, they could always see him coming <laughs> because he carries the light. So it's just a, a, a very fascinating thing when you think like, I really made an effort in this book to, to bring the streets to life, to bring the people to life, like the actual circumstances to go down in more depth as opposed to on high, you know, and I really wanted to create that feeling of being there in the night and what it was like, you know, so, so that's why I talk about all these details in such depth. Well, I really appreciate the details. And as a person yeah. who works primarily in the 20th century, I was fascinated to learn about how complex and expensive it was to have a real quality lantern, which then made the subsequent, we'll get into it now with your second chapter, the the people attacking you, breaking these lanterns. I'm like, oh my gosh, just the financial cost of that. That's like setting a police car on fire or something. Yeah, that, that was the comparison I made because it's their most expensive equipment, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. Well, let's look at that now, the sort of day-to-day -day affronteries and services of, of these guards, of these patrolmen. Mm -hmm. So in your second chapter, Men Walking the Beat, you examine more closely the biographies and the day-to-day -day activities of these patrolmen. And you argue that in some ways they're similar to present-day police, but on the other hand, their activities included, and I had to put in this quote because it was so uh, wonderful from you, helping women in labor find a nearby midwife, 
facilitating priests to carry out the ceremony of last rites, and the gruesome task of massacring dozens of stray dogs each night, end quote. So very distinct from police today. So could you tell us more about these men walking their beat and what that might actually have been like? Yeah, yeah. I, I, uh, again, an overall goal of the book um, that I want to mention was a labor history. So, so creating the the setting the scene so people could kind of feel it more uh, tangibly with their senses, um, as well as these are men working. And I, I think um, it's difficult to do a labor history for New Spain in this era. So I, I think that's a, a valuable thing to offer as best as I can offer it, right? So that that's what I'm trying to do in these, like maybe this chapter and the next one. Um, so yeah, these men were just plebeian immigrant, uh, oftentimes uh, coming in from, from rural areas, like so many of thousands upon thousands of people did. Um, so it, they kind of reflected the... Um, the general population in terms of, of immigration from, from rural areas that were so devastated in the 1780s, right? Um, a very hard year, you know, a year of hunger, they literally call uh, 1786, I believe. So a, a terrible year in, in rural areas. Um, so coming into the city, um, what's really interesting to me, uh, you know, as a slight aside, we we don't know much about their biography. So this is where the utility of the famous Libros de Reos, the the better known source uh, runs out because they they simply refer to the night watchman by number, which their number refers to their beat. So they haven't, which is the term used as ramo or branch. So they're, um, they don't have a badge in that way that has a number or a piece of equipment like a car that has a number. They're numbered by this kind of the city map. So if you're patrolman 23, that means you're in ramo 23. So that's how they're referred to in the Libros de Reo. So you have to look at deeper, um, tr like deeper investigations to figure out their biography, because of course, uh, you know, typical in any uh, criminal investigation of any kind in this era, they include a little biography anytime somebody's a witness or, of course, a, a litigant, right? So they could just be a witness in in a. Um, in any case involving any topic, and then we would learn a tiny bit about them. So that's how I gathered that pretty much the average night watchman was a man in their late 20s who was claiming Spanish ancestry um, uh, and, you know, was either from Mexico City or a region, you know, not too far outside of Mexico City or places like Querétaro, you know, uh, around the uh, central Mexico region. Um and uh, illiterate, they were all illiterate. Um, what's fascinating that you can uh, derive from these these larger um, case files that mention them, you know, whether in passing or whether as a central figure uh, in the litigation, um, is that there's a number of men working this job who are not labeled Espanol, which is very interesting because, of course, they had a certain amount of authority. Uh, so there were even indigenous patrolmen, which to me is very, very fascinating. Um, there were uh, not not a large number, but a handful. There were also a small handful uh, of men with the other race labels that, of course, are a bit less common in Mexico City in this era. So I don't think it's any particular prejudice. It's just that these labels are not common in Mexico City. Mestizo, mulatto, negro, those are not common labels in the late 18th century to, for people to take on and, you know, in the general census. And of course, perhaps your listeners know, you know, this doesn't have anything to do with their actual genealogy. A lot of the time, it's just what they can, you know, call themselves, right? Um, so, so yeah, they, uh, again, they were 
typical of the plebeians. Now, I was thinking when I read your questions before the interview, um, I was kind of thinking like, what makes them different? Like who chooses this job and why in terms of, you know, our, our thoughts about policing to this day? You know, there's a concept that, um, you know, people might choose this because because they want to have a, a kind of petty power over vulnerable people on the streets. So, uh, um, you know, I, I wondered, and I think of the character of Bernal, and, and I don't know, I mean, that would all just be speculation because to me, it's a better job than being a day laborer, which is, of course, the majority of men. Um, there's a uh, cla- classic, in my mind, classic quote taken from around 1830 um, in, a, in a book that's attributed to a Bow Street runner in, in London, in, in the UK, a very, um, you know, a, a sort of semi-fictional. And he says something that I think could be connected to these, these night watchmen in Mexico City. He says something like, I didn't want to wear any livery. You know, I didn't want to be a servant. So I think maybe some of this men felt like that. They didn't want to be a domestic servant. They didn't want to be a day laborer because, you know, sincerely, who would who would want to be that per, um, very precarious job, you know, employment uh, situation. And um, while this was low paid, it was paid about 14 pesos a month. So very low paid. Um, and of course, if you broke any of the equipment or it got broken, you had to pay for it. So you could end up in debt like so many, you know, classic stories of, of Latin America, um, you know, especially 19th century, right? Debt, debt peonage, this kind of thing. So this could happen to them. But as long as you could figure out a way to at least appear to stay up all night <laughs> and remain reasonably sober, you might get that steady wage. And, and that's a little bit of a privilege in this in this time and place. So I, I, it's very interesting to me. So yeah, they, they, um, in terms of their nightly, uh, routine, which I try to cover in that chapter, you know, their equipment was, a a, a chuso, which is just a stick with a kind of a blade on top. Um, they actually discarded that because themselves, they chose not to use it because if they ever actually hit somebody with a chuso, they had to pay the medical bills. And if they, um, took somebody into custody, they had no free hands. (laughs) So they decided on their own uh, to just just carry ropes. This is really lightly documented. You know, it's very hard to to know these real specific details, but the Chuso did not have the symbolism of like a firearm would for for more recent uh, law enforcement, right? Um, and, and And other than their lantern and their whistle, which, um, you know, derives from older, uh, types of patrols, uh, also very obscure. Um, that's it. There was no uniform. There was no other way to distinguish them, but the Chuso or the, even just the lantern were enough for people to recognize this was a guardafarolero, a lantern guard. So yeah. And they, um, they did do those kind of, I almost like to make the argument semi-religious tasks in that they were the ones who were at birth and death, you know, uh, because, you know, people often have these momentous changes in their life at night, right? And, and there's no infrastructure. Uh, and there's that idea that people don't want to go out at night unescorted. A doctor or a priest or a midwife does not want to go at night out at night alone 
without the escort of, of uh, basically a bodyguard, right? So that's why they were called on and they were frequently called on. You know, some nights you see, um, there's about uh, roughly 99 of them. And and again, uh, common to the area, you can't say there's exactly this number on the street because that would be ridiculous to try to be so precise But uh, for that time period. But um, yeah, often, you know, some night you'd see maybe four or five of these kind of life born and, and death uh, uh, happening in the course of a, a night in terms of their records, what they're doing. Um, yeah. And uh, they also, um, uh, I guess this is the next chapter They, you know, they also had kind of that social wel- welfare role as one of their basic tasks, uh, you know, not just sort of first responder, but also kind of, um, you know, orphans on the streets and people who were incapacitated due to, due to mental, physical health, et cetera, or, or simply um, disabled, you know, ha- how to figure out if these people should be on the street, if there was a safer place for them. So, so that aspect is part of their nightly duties, so to speak. I think that uh, you, you're making these transitions very perfect for me because you, you've tied together there how status and prestige, uh, uh, capability, if not a propensity to violence, and then uh, this, this taking care of basic social welfare, basic social tasks as we would consider them today. And that brings us, you're right, into your third chapter, To Protect and Serve. And this chapter highlights the more heroic aspects of the patrolman. And you argue at the end of this chapter that like present day police, they are tasked or were tasked with confronting social woes. Quote, some of the earliest patrolmen in American history also dealt with many individuals in emotional distress or struggling with a wide array of disabilities on the streets. And then like you just mentioned, orphans or other people with nowhere else to go. So tell us more about this heroic or protecting and serving aspect of the patrolman. Yeah, it's it's very interesting because, of course, you know, if you read, um, if you kind of read like a, a commentator, uh, there are commentators who who portray them in a heroic, almost martyr-like way, and of course, you know, that's a that that's like in an effort to to improve their their working conditions, their pay. So, you know, that that's classic uh, rhetoric, right? Um, but there are many incidents of um, basically, it's in line with. Um, what uh, the the famous uh, book from several years ago by Arom on the um, uh, poorhouse, you know, it's in line with those reforms, creating a, a poorhouse, creating a place for um, people to avoid having beggars on the street, which I guess is kind of a, a also a um, more cynical or practical, if you want to be euphemistic, idea that that people who are incapacitated, who can't, who can't, um, basically can't earn an income could be in the poorhouse. So, so sometimes the night watchmen or oftentimes I have a, have a chart that explains uh, the examples I could find their, their job is to, uh, you know, get people into the poorhouse, right. Um, people who, who seem to be unable to work. Um, it's very interesting because by reading these records carefully, you can kind of see the diversity of people on the streets. I mean, that there may have been a community of hearing impaired people, you know, and, and they speak to them and they're like, oh, they figured out that he, you know, he has a wife and, you know, it's all this, these things. Um, the the uh, reference to people kind of, um, you know, struggling with, with um, various, you know, uh, emotional, mental issues on the street. Um, they, they always refer to it uh, as, as a kind of epilepsy. 
So they were often dealing with that where they would have people kind of, first they would think they were drunk and, you know, and then they would be like, oh, it's more serious than that. So they'd find, you know, find people in various kind of attacks, seizures. And sometimes those were um, very, very serious people committing suicide, you know, in some form of a seizure. So so they would be called to, to deal with that. Probably one of my favorite and a poignant way records is when they actually come upon um, a 12-year-old boy and a two-year-old boy living in a trash heap <laughs> who are orphans. So they they take them in, of course, because you can't have a two-year-old, you know, living with his older brother on the street, right? Um, and that is, a, and in those cases, you know, those situations, um, you know, it, it's not, um a perfect world, they're taking them into, you know, some kind of service, right? So so you also see the different um, gender role, you know, who, who who's considered like vulnerable and who's considered actually more of a threat depending on age and gender. You know, a very elderly person isn't too threatening. A, a boy under 14 isn't too threatening, you know, all those kinds of things. So how, how people are treated, uh, women under uh, 16 are not you know, whatever they're doing are considered more, more victims, whereas older, they might be, they might be um, viewed as uh, street solicitors, you know, instead, so more criminalized depending on the age. Um, so yeah, there's a huge range of, of things like that. Um, and then of course, um, the, the key, the key duty other than lighting, lighting the lanterns is, um, I think this is a, I'm skipping one chapter, so I won't go into too much depth, is, is of course, dealing with the people who are who are uh, intoxicated to the point of passed out on the street. So you could think of that uh, as a type of protect and serve if you're taking a person who's, you know, completely uh, comatose off the streets. So that, that's an aspect of it for sure. Um, but yeah, I'm trying to think if there were any other examples of, 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 um, these sorts of duties, I think that kind of covers the main ones that I can remember. <laughs> I know you began this fairly early in the interview. You wanted to push back on the surveillance uh, and viewing them as perfect surveyors, but it is hard not to think about the importance of their gaze and the way that they view things and categorize people, I think really comes uh, across in this chapter. Mm -hmm. um, Interesting. Yeah. Well, let's take a look at your fourth chapter, Nightlife. And this looks at the patrolman's role in the seedier aspects of the night in Mexico City. And you point out, quote, the Serenos, referring to the patrolman, essential purpose was to enlighten the night by literally embodying the state. Their physical presence outdoors at night, along with their lanterns, pikes, and whistles, symbolized the Spanish viceroyalty and municipality had now an increased involvement, official involvement in Mexico City's nightlife. So tell us a little bit about what nightlife was like in Mexico City at this point, and how did the patrolman enlighten it? Or try to, at least. <laughs> yeah, I'm not even sure if they tried to all that hard. <laughs> I, I always try to be, uh, you know, to, to really humanize the, the characters that I deal with. And, and um, you know, I, I'm, I'm always teaching and I, I, uh, I think about speaking to my students and, and other ways that I, you know, kind of practice history. And I was recently, you know, had a class yesterday that was about uh, using um, the book, uh, by Tatiana Cejas, the Asian slavery book. And then I was listening to a podcast, um, the Bad Women podcast. I don't know if you're allowed to refer to other podcasts on this podcast, <laughs> but a great podcast. And, and both of those things happening on one day made me think, uh, you know, 
in terms of listening and and teaching myself is that by studying the past, the complexity that we study, the the contextual complexity that we as historians are should be you know duty bound to 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 narrate in our in our books, it can actually spark empathy to the present. So, so that, that's, I feel like, you know, instead of all these cliches about history repeating itself and blah, 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 um, that, that I know the academic historians don't, don't pay attention to. Like, I, I think that, you know, by, by studying these people in the past, it actually highlights more thoughts that we might have about people in the present. So, so, you know, h- how we react to them emotionally. So I think that, that, that just blew my mind, um, from that podcast as such a great, a great observation. Um, so I think it, when we're talking about this chapter, you could see both, both sides, as as a complex human figures, right? And that that's my goal. And my goal also there, but through the use of many many maps that I organized through a fantastic cart- cartographer, um, based on a, a 1790s map that that's well known and accessible. Um, the, the, I'm trying to also bring to life the city, right? So it's like all these different characters. So it's nightlife, like it's really the culture of nightlife in Mexico city in the 1790s and a bit after. So the physical space, everything. So of course uh, my point throughout the chapter and, and I'm very, very lucky to have had the dissertation advisor that I had, who was professor William Taylor, who, who I read decades ago, his book from the seventies on drinking homicide and rebellion. So really this book and this chapter are kind of dedicated to him because I really, um, maybe he's listening, <laughs> idolized, idolized him as, as a mentor. And I know I'm not the only one. And he read this book with a fine tooth comb as a, as a um, press reader. But yeah, this, so this book is, this chapter is about drinking, right? It's about the drinking culture. And it's really inspired by the historiography that he played such a key role in, in the seventies. Um, very, you know, complex, uh, uh, interesting historiography. So yeah, my, my intervention in this was to, to try to lay out that geography uh, of the Mexico city, uh, streets and, um, looking at the map that we have access to that highlights at least the pulquerias where, where you sell this, um, pulque, the low alcohol, uh, you know, cactus fermented cactus juice, basically, uh, um, that's popular today for the last 15 years. It's kind of become a little bit more trendy in modern era. Um, the, uh, yeah, the, the, at least the pulquerias that were pretty well established are all marked on, on this particular 1790s map. So you can get this geography of drinking and nightlife. And then if you take those pulquerias and you map them onto the Libros de Reos, which is the accounts of arrests made throughout the course of the night, you can kind of visualize, imagine people moving through their drinking routine and then as they move through it and over the course of the night, because of course there's kind of timestamps on the arrest records, you can, you know, how they get more and more drunk and the arrests kind of peak at around, you know, maybe 11 PM uh, and then die, die off maybe because the patrolmen are tired or maybe people have made it home. But um, yeah, so that, that's what I was trying to do is, is um, you know, the, the, the patrolmen were making arrests for people who were basically drunk and disorderly, or they were rounding up people who were tirado, who had passed out on the street. So, um, 
and they label these arrests. At, they're very simply labeled in the in the arrest records that I've been referring to, kind of these nightly log books of which um, uh, about four or five or so survive and fragmented. And the only one that's really complete is from 1798 or relatively complete. Um, but yeah, they basically just say um, that night watchman number 49 took, uh, you know, they give a name and they give a, a race label uh, and sometimes a place of origin and, you know, marital status, took this individual, you could say, Jose Gomez, Indio, you know, 30 años, casado, like uh, a 30-year-old indigenous man married from Puebla, uh, took him into custody, por borracho, and, and that would be for being drunk. And then there's all the different um, different words that they use. Uh, ebrio, inebriated is a really big one. I I, I tried to kind of analyze why they use different words. Like why why is somebody ebrissimo, you know, extreme? Like what's the difference? And I couldn't get to too much about that, but <laughs> um, it did seem like borracho was a little bit less drunk than ebrissimo. But you know, but and then tirado, the passed out. So, so that's, of course, super depressing when you read, you know, page after page after page of men and women uh, of all ages from, I don't know, maybe 15 through to, I think there's even like a 90-year-old allegedly, you know, tirado, passed out on the street, right? So, um, but, you know, it's it, it might sound a little boring presented like that, that it's just kind of comatose or, or just incredibly depressing, but it's also, um, you know, tons of fights because- as everybody knows, when you're drinking, you tend to get more aggressive and fight and shout and all that. So, so that's an aspect of it too. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think that kind of sums it up. Uh, um, and of course, the the pulquerias that I'm able to map in that chapter are only the ones, as I said, that are kind of permanent buildings because there's several hundred. And many of those would be not, you know, officially authorized and they might be just like a stand or even just a person standing there, typically a woman standing there with like a jug of pulque, you know, and maybe some basic cups. Right. So that that wouldn't be something that I could map. But, you know, there's a sense like there if you look at the the this map from this era that I drew from, um, you know, there's whole neighborhoods like the Bulgaria del Palacio is a whole neighborhood um just to the, um, I'm looking at the copy of the map I have on my wall over there, just to the um, southeast of the Socolo, where there's like, you know, everything's going on in the Pulqueria del Palacio in the 1790s, like everything you can imagine is going on in there. <laughs> so that's all documented. And you can figure out exactly how people might have walked there, passed out, you know, as they were leaving and the surrounding, you know, streets and plazas and whatnot. And there's other areas that have similar density that that is recorded. So that's what I was trying to do. And, um, you know, I, w I wish I had even more details in terms of broader regions and where people are going home to, uh, you know, on a nightly basis within the city, et cetera. Well, I really can't praise the maps enough. That's a real labor of love that all other sorts of historians benefit from. I'm very excited to use some of those images in uh, lectures or in classes I have in the future. So I'd recommend those to the readers in particular. Yeah. They're, they were really fun and great to work with Aaron Greb, the cartographer that the press uh, recommended. Your fifth chapter, subsequent one, changes, relates obviously to the fourth chapter, but changes the tone a little bit with guards in trouble. 
and it argues that the oversight and punishment of the early law enforcement corps in Mexico City, or maybe at this point in time globally, has been misunderstood a little bit by historians. You contend that while the patrolmen of Mexico City did have an easier time avoiding conviction or serious punishment for major crimes when they were accused, particularly of sexual violence, which we might talk about a bit here, they were disciplined more heavily perhaps, than people anticipate for smaller infractions, like not showing up for work or falling asleep, as if you, as you've hinted at, or arriving drunk or too drunk. Maybe some drunk was acceptable. <laughs> uh, it really was. <laughs> <laughs> could you tell us a little bit more about what sorts of things a guard or patrolman might be uh, accused of at this time and how they were or were not held accountable? Yeah, I, so I'm, you know, the the two, I, I, should, um, I should mention the two, uh, scholars who previously used the Libros de Reos in depth, and that's Michael Scardaville in the 70s, and he published um, articles uh, uh, in the 80s and 90s, and then the legal historian who uh, is Spanish, um, uh, Sanchez Arcia. So those are the two who have studied these in the, in the depth that I have, or even perhaps more depth. Um, and uh, they, uh, so in Scardaville's argument, he, he, you know, he does a great job. Um, his, his dissertation is basically about the urban poor using this source and, and more elite sources. Right. And, um, and again, I want to stress that I don't simply use the Libros de Reos, but, but many, many other sources, which is the difficult part. You know, it's not an obvious source, um, to, to figure out this history. There's many multiple sources, you know, that you have to pull in. Um, but he, uh, he made the argument that, it seemed to him that when the night watchmen were taken into custody for various offenses, they were punished more lightly. But no regular person is is taken in for the offense of sleeping at night. <laughs> so it's kind of like that. That's not an offense. That's not a legal offense. That's a work discipline issue. So that's basically my argument there. Like it, it it's. They, they were what's recorded in the Libros de Reos as petty because those are those are uh, justicia de primera instancia, just rapid justice for petty offenses. Um, the, you know, they range from, um, I mean, most of them are simply being drunk on the job, not showing up or sleeping on the job. So, yeah, they didn't get super harsh punishment for those things because those aren't really extreme crimes. You know, um, and I think that that was a matter of the classic, in my experience as uh, studying criminal records in Mexico City, the classic kind of appearances matter to the authorities in this era. So those are just like the way that um, in my previous book from 2018, Profit and Passion, I talked about when they uh, were often taking women into custody for just being on the street. So that that's not a crime to be on the street. And people might say, it's been argued, well, there was a curfew, but the being on the street arrest was never done to men. So <laughs> it can't just be the fact that they were on the street. Like, so I'm, I make the argument in my 2018 book that, that this was a suggestion that they were perhaps soliciting or the idea that women on the street kind of just doesn't make us look good. You know, it's a, it's an honor thing, you know? So, so having a, a law enforcement patrol passed out drunk on the street looks bad. So let's get him off the street. Right. So those are petty, um, situations and, um, they do have, uh, complaints about corruption. The, um, the most common kind of insult that was thrown at the, at the lantern guards was thief. 
because it strikes me that um, the populace, they didn't find it worthy of insulting a guard if they were drunk or asleep. In other words, I think that that didn't rise to a point of insult for them. It's like, so what, you know, but if there's a thief, you know, there's a, a, I don't want to say a lot, but, but a number, a several accusations, like, you know, when I was taken into custody, he stole this, et cetera. And, and always there's a back and forth, uh, as to, as to what happened or didn't happen. You know, he said, she said, et cetera. Um, so, so thief was the thing that really bugged people and that they chose to insult them for. Um, and then of course, as you mentioned, there's more serious offenses, especially um, sexual assault type offenses. Now, there's not a large number of those, but there's one that I find uh, extremely poignant, especially because it connects to my previous book on sex work. Um, and, and I would encourage readers to just, it's a complex case that it's hard to summarize because what, what I also tried to do in the book is to take out a lot of like dialogue so I, I was fortunate in these um, longer case studies that were uh, basically guards in trouble, you know, where they were being prosecuted for, for true crimes uh, that they committed. Um, there was a certain amount of dialogue uh, written in there, which which I found super, super interesting. And I tried to capture and even have it stand out um, in the text so people could feel like they're almost reading a, a play, a, a dialogue, right? So that that I don't want to summarize this this pretty horrible, um, uh, sexual assault because you can, it, there's a lot of complexity in that, that I would encourage people to just read it. Um, but I, I feel like that's actually rather typical of other cases where, for example, if you think of, um, Zeb Tortorisi's work on, um, on the, uh, uh, solicitation in the confessional, you know, these are things that there's types of sexual related crimes that are very serious that I feel that, again, there's an idea that we don't want to perhaps prosecute this too much in this sense, because it makes it, it makes us look bad that we have these things happening, you know, and of course, Zeb is talking about things that also occur to the present day that are also hidden to the present day, you know, within um, the Catholic church. So it's, it's not an unusual reaction, right. To, to hide things that are, that almost, you know, universally, we would consider terrible offenses, moral offenses and criminal offenses, right? So I feel like that as as very, very petty and lowly, the lowest of the low city officials, even still, they, they didn't want to make too much of a record that would memorialize the, these men's, uh, their, their sexual um, abuse, of the populace, right? So that that's my thinking on that, which kind of fits with what, what I've studied in the history of sexuality for the for the exact same time period, uh, as well as before and after. Um, so yeah, that that's kind of the range of of things that they did to get in trouble, and um, you know, it, as today, I think the power of a patrolman is very petty. It, it, the people who have the power are, of course, government. And economic elites, so the 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 night watchmen are are simply kind of foot soldiers of larger political ideologies, right? Uh, but in the moment of interacting with plebeians on the street, they are a kind of authority. Although that's a good transition to the next chapter, because we really have to underscore how uh, 
how just tenuous any claims that they had on any kind of authority was, you know, because they weren't the only people out there on the street who were authority figures at night. Which we'll, which we'll get into in the final chapter, the other people who believe they have authority and don't respect them. Uh, I think that this chapter and then the next one that we're about to talk about now really, uh, really develop an argument you make throughout the book that these patrolmen are, are seen popularly as representatives of the state. And that can be both good and bad, right? They can both carry all of the, the prestige, the power of the state, but they also then are a symbol of corruption and a symbol of, of victimization, uh, which will, let's move on to your sixth chapter now, guards under attack, uh, as people are not always happy with the state and their representatives. Uh, this chapter aptly follows up on the fifth chapter with, quote, 120 incidents related to rejecting authority of street patrols, including, and I love this list, Insults, mockery, sarcastic comments, resisting arrest, tearing their capes and shirts, physically beating the serenos, and most frequently, breaking the glass of the guards' lanterns. And you'd so thoroughly outlaid the technological and fiscal investment in these lanterns that I gasped a couple of times reading it. Like, oh my gosh, no. That tells you how dedicated I am to keeping things pristine. Could you tell us more about how and why the people of Mexico City so often wanted to put these guards on? Yeah, and I would say I'll just I'll just beg to differ on the idea of prestige. I don't think they had any prestige. I think the reason why, to me, they were there was a target painted on them, you know. And and what's interesting to me is that the historiography that I um, uh, looked at, you know, from Europe in the era, especially Paris, was was doubling down on the idea that. Everybody was always attacking street patrols. You know, it was just the norm to attack them. I mean, I I think that this is what I really wanted to underscore because I was writing it in the precise era of summer 2020, you know, in my house, right? And I I, I was just reading my sources uh, that I that I'd had me or my students had photographed, um, you know, in previous times that we could use the archives. Um and it's just like from the dawn of modern law enforcement, they have been under attack. And and that's not a value judgment. It's just a simple fact that that the popul- urban populace cannot stand to be patrolled. <laughs> you know, for, from time immemorial, they will always, it, they are figures of mockery. And I think what it is, is that it's, so easy to see them as, you know, classic Latin American history thing. Like these are the, these are the government officials that we have access to, you know? Um, and so, yeah, all the, the lists that you made, um, you know, uh, uh, sparks my memory. I mean, there's so many of these, one of my favorite ones is the Chances, just teasing them. You know, just teasing them and mocking them. And, and, and it's so funny because sometimes it's like little kids, you know, um, (laughs) throwing rocks at them. And there's, Mm -hmm. um, one of my favorite cases is, um, the, one of the lantern guards was out on the street cleaning his lantern. And I think, uh, um, uh, an indigenous, a young, a very young indigenous man who was carrying coal, just like dumped the coal on him, you know, just stuff like that, like petty stuff all the time. And I feel like, you know, things like ripping their cape or ripping their shirt, that was in a struggle of, you know, probably a drunken struggle. Um, and so they didn't, um, and they, there's like 
maybe one or not even you know not even two incidents of people wanting to do something to the chuso the the weapon probably because they didn't carry it or it's a little easier to break or harder more hard difficult to break but yeah the lantern is the key thing and again there's a great historiography on that which a, a colleague of mine here at Oregon State pointed me to um uh uh about the idea of lantern smashing in Europe and how how much political importance it has in places like France and England. Huge political importance to smash the lanterns. And so that was totally new to me. And I don't know anybody who's talked about that for Mexico City. Um, and I think that is a symbol, like you said, like a police car, like where you see those scenes of people shaking, burning police cars. Like, to me, that's like that because it's expensive and it's symbolic it symbolizes the technology that they have, however ridiculously rudimentary this technology is from our point of view, it symbolizes that. So, And then the, the other fun, fascinating part about that is it was men and women doing this. The only difference between men and women is that um, women did it more in groups, groups of men or groups of women. But, you know, so they a single woman on her own might not smash a lantern commonly, but if she were with uh, a man or another woman, they would do it. And actually, the majority of the lantern smashers are indigenous. So it's just like, to me, it's like that simmering anger. And um, there is this idea that Mexico City is not the most, you know, insurgent part of Mexico, which I hope that this changes that because the unrest seems, when you look at these records, seems pretty regular. And then if you connect it up to, um, again, Sylvia Rome's uh, uh, article on the 1828, um, shoot, I, the name escapes me, uh, the 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 famous uh, kind of shopping mall in the middle, middle of the Socolo, the, the 1828 um, uh, attack on that. You know, we can see all this action in Mexico City. I'll probably remember the name by the end of the <laughs> I hope I can just pull up my look at my book. Um, the uh, yeah, so the um, yeah, there, there's so much unrest, and it's it's from uh, the lower classes. And again, yes, they might be drunk, but you know, maybe it's a case of in vino veritas, right? That this is their time when you're doing it. We shouldn't just dismiss it as drunk because if I mean, I feel like there's actually an element of racism if we would do that because. And I looked at the um, European historiography. They talk about these these street revolts starting at the wine shop, and we don't think of them as you know savages coming out of a wine shop. We think the exact opposite. So so maybe we can uh, stretch our brains and think of that in terms of pulque as well. You know that would be a little bit uh, of a different way of thinking, perhaps. But um, yeah, so I feel like there there is that simmering rage against authority figures, and these men are the men that are easy. So it's their lack of prestige that makes them so easy to attack. And remember, they were claiming many; the majority of them were claiming the label Espanol, but there also were people who were attacked who were not Espanol. So it's not a kind of a race war, I think. And there were never any in these attacks. There were never, ever, ever any racial racialized language in any way, shape, or form. So I don't think that's what they were getting at. I think it was the fact that they were night watchmen. It was their occupation that that people were attacking. Because surely they, they mentioned so many other crude insults. If there were an insult relating to a race label, I'm sure it would be included in the documents. So, yeah. I, 
I can understand why in the context of the insurgency, maybe a historian would describe Mexico City that way. But it's it's kind of it was comical to be like, oh, yeah, who would ever describe Mexico City or people who live there as passive? Um, it's uh, difficult to imagine a time that that would have been true. Yeah. Yeah. So let's look at the final listed chapter here, which is the seventh chapter, the mm-hmm. night watchman, the military and the insurgency. And this chapter studies the complex and escalating conflicts between the patrolmen and the royal military in the city after 1810. And when the insurgency for Mexican independence began, you make the interesting point here that even though soldiers and patrolmen had similar backgrounds, and in fact, patrolmen often had military experience, that the two groups came into conflict with each other over competing notions of public order and rights, and then especially the military fuero. And maybe it would be beneficial to just remind our listeners what what the military fuero entails. So could you tell our listeners a little more about this friction and the, between the patrolmen and the soldiers? Yeah, so I had to delve into another topic that I'm not too familiar with, which is military history of New Spain. And, um, you know, as is well known for, for those of us who study this at a graduate level, you had a, a in the 18th century that, you know, the um, Spanish authorities are really trying to build up uh, the, the militia and um, even even the kind of standing military, and so that that one of the perks was judicial privileges, where you would uh, wouldn't have to face um, regular courts, you know, the same as priests, right? So you have these privileges, these fueros, right? So this was a kind of a big thing to um, lure men into to becoming military men, uh, because you know that's super appealing. Um, and there's a lot of great historiography on that, of course. O- older and, and McLaughlin, I think, is Colin McLaughlin is, is one of the best sources for that. Uh, nice, nice old-fashioned political history. <laughs> easy, you know, easy to, to, to understand. So that, so yeah, that it strikes me that again we see the kind of plebeian nature of of the um Guadafaroleros, the lantern guards, because uh the military men, I there's no example I have of them appearing to respect them. <laughs> they just <laughs> detested them. They just, mm. I, I mean, they laughed in their faces. I, I, I kind of, maybe it sparked this whole project in that when I was reading about um, the uh, uh, history of sexuality for the same period, there was an incident that I, that I cited in both books um, that was like, the um, a municipal official was actually begging the viceroy to force soldiers to comply to, you know, municipal authorities like the night watchman. He was like, could you please make them respect us, please? And actually, now I'm remembering, if you committed a, a municipal offense against a night watchman, that was not supposed to be protected by the fuero. That's in it. That, that's in the historiography. So, you shouldn't have the military privilege uh, of this special court system if you're going against municipal authorities. That's actually incorrect according to their own system. Um, so yeah, and uh, you know the incident that sparked off that that kind of begging, almost whining tone that I see in these uh, that I try to highlight um, was you know a bunch of soldiers were hanging out with uh, what they considered you know mujeres mundanas, you know sex workers, right? And the and the night watchman went up and you know said something, tried to do something, and the the, the military men actually took out a gun, which is super rare in that era. Threatened them with a pistola, you know. It's like that you don't expect to see, you know. It's usually uh, knives or just fists, right? Um, so so they, they were just kind of laughed off, chased away. Um, and then the so there's constant stuff like that, just constant disrespect, and you know the night watchman might go into a, a party. 
because you know that was an uh, that was something that they were often uh, policing. You know, too much noise. It's quite funny because they're like they were playing too loud of guitars. You know, any of us would probably love to hear that, that what that sounded like, but it was raucous at night. Um, so yeah, there's all kinds of things like that where they go in and they try to shut down parties. You know, and they just get shoved off, laughed and mocked. And then there's even a case that's quite weird, which is what I end this section of, um, it, which is more, I think more during the era of Iturbide because a lot of um, the records extend until then. Uh, quite good records for that era on, on this topic. And that was actually uh, uh, post-insurgency. There was a an Irish man who had fought an insurgency on the side of the Spanish. And he actually... Uh, had some sort of violent or probably drunken rage one night. And he actually like brutally, brutally attacked two night watchmen with his sword. And he um, killed one of them. He died quite rapidly. And the other one, you know, languished with, with really bad infections in a hospital. And I probably made it, but these were, you know, young men. And I think they might've, one of them might've actually even been indigenous. uh, The one, the one who passed away. So, you know, they actually even uh, escalated to, to murder. Uh, the, the soldiers. So that just shows, you know, the tension and also shows um, the presence of those soldiers uh, throughout the late 18th century, early 19th century did not help, you know, did not keep the peace in Mexico city. They caused more drunkenness, more violence, more, more um, assaults on the street, everything. And I, I also noticed that in my, in my book on um, transactional sex, it was the same thing. So that's definitely a worse, a worse, influence is the military presence in Mexico city, uh, versus the night watchmen. They're definitely a, a more uh, violent presence. Now that, and then the, the entire book together, uh, was very poignant for me. And I'll bring this to your conclusion now, uh, because you bring all these ideas together and make some points about policing generally and, and what this sort of history can tell us. And this is very poignant for me as I live in Minneapolis and have for close to 10 years now. So it's been very interesting to see the ways that this touches on discussions about policing here in the city here. So you write, and I quote, policing that only responds to the desires of the elite to protect their personal property and maintain what they view as order will not endure without protest and potentially even revolution. Unfortunately, history also proves that revolution do not succeed in effectively reforming law enforcement. And I wonder what it has been like to write this book as public debates and perceptions around policing have evolved in the past decade. Yeah, I, I think that, um, I mean, I think that I, I stand by that because I know that we, in the in more recent years, we have not seen, as far as I'm aware, some distinct you know, social improvement in policing, right? Despite uh, many, many months of protests, right? So I, I think that that holds. And I think, you know, any anybody with a casual uh, knowledge of history, you know, when they think of revolutions, they, throughout history, they can see that the new systems brought in. I mean, I remember learning in high school and early years of college about the Russian revolution, right? This, I mean, that's so obvious, right? <laughs> the systems brought in are, are not a big improvement, you know, and we all know that from the Mexican revolution as well, right? Any number of, I mean, French, we could go on and on, right? Um, the uh, So, 
we did have the the excellent point about policing or proto-policing in Mexico City is that I am talking about insurgents, you know, I'm talking about the insurgent era. And it, and as you well know, and many of our listeners here do, is that was a massive world-changing insurgency. You know, it doesn't quite get the credit because it's not France or the U.S., but it, it really is, as we well know, right, a, a very, very important insurgent movement, just like, you know, the Haitian Revolution, et cetera, other massive movements in, in Latin America of great historical importance. But yeah, and then I don't think there's anybody, especially uh, Mexican citizens, who would say, yeah, law enforcement got so much better in the 19th and 20th century in Mexico. Like That, that would be an utterly bizarre statement. Even nobody in 1835 would say that. Or, you know, perhaps people in the Porfirian era would, but we all know what that led to, another revolution, right? So, so I just, I think that, I, I feel like that 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 point is is pretty strong, <laughs> and I would say that you know it, it's where it we really have to think maybe more deeply uh, about these systems, right? Uh, and it, w- it would certainly be difficult to to try to do more effective revolutions than people have been doing for hundreds of years already, right? So it's just I just think that that it, it's a a thought it's a, meant to provoke thought, right? You know, and if, and I, I think it, I think, you know, my overall goal in the book is also to provoke thought about the human experience of the history of policing as well, you know, and to think about that in, in a, in a different kind of a way, hopefully at least add to the debate, right, about the history of policing. But certainly uh, the overarching goal, you know, the overarching point is that people have always resisted street patrols at least in the last few hundred years. Um, and uh, let's see, what was my other big point? <laughs> that people have always done that. And I actually just forgot my other huge point of the book. But, uh, <laughs> um, you know, I think that that's a good enough point right there. And oh, now I remember it. Sorry, maybe we should cut that last bit out. Um, and the other another key point would be um, that origins of policing in the Americas, perhaps not in Europe, but in the Americas are, are based on, on racialization because, because we're, we're colonies. Right. And, and so that there should be sadly, uh, cynically, there should be no surprised reactions if policing is racialized. Right. Because that's exactly what I'm talking about in terms of drinking patterns. And just like people make the argument today, it's not that indigenous people were necessarily drinking more. They were just perhaps doing it a little bit more on the streets because that, as I said before, that was kind of the setting that, that was their social setting. That was, that was customary. Right. So, um, yeah, I, I think these, these ideas could lend themselves, um, to, to broader discussions. I just, and I, I think that this hopefully is a good response to your question. I just hope that my book has not come too late in all of 2022 that actually this discussion has become no longer interesting to the vast majority of people in the U.S. to think about policing. If you see what I'm saying, that they've already become, they've moved on to other trends. You know what I'm saying? That, that you know, because it takes a certain time to get a legitimate academic book out. <laughs> we don't release our books in five seconds like popular stuff, you know. 
So I just hope that there's still enough energy out there to think, yes, these debates that were so important two and a half years ago should still be something we talk about, right? Let's not forget them already. <laughs> well, unfortunately for, for us, but perhaps relevant to, to what you just bring up is the what's going on in Atlanta right now. I think mm-hmm. that there's certainly uh, an ongoing conversation of this, at least for for some of the country at any given yeah, moment. Exactly. Exactly. Some people would still find these debates extremely important. That that should be they should be listened to, right? Well, thank you so much for your time today. And before we go, can you tell us a little bit more about what you're working on now or would like to work on going forward? Yeah, I would absolutely love to do that. And I really appreciate the opportunity to do that because I do have a a book coming out that um, draws from this book um, and I'm attempting to have it be a more popular book. It's called uh, Death in Old Mexico. It comes out in May of 2023 and it's about actually the mass murder event. So it's a sort of a true crime book, an academic true crime book, the mass murder event that took place in 1789, which actually sparked the foundation of of the Night Watchman that we've been talking about for this whole podcast. So, uh, you know, an, a, 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 um, a home invasion that went horrifically violent on um, October, the night of October 11th, 1789, where three Spaniards went into the house of a very wealthy Spaniard uh, whose name was Joaquim Dongo, and he was uh, brutally, brutally murdered along with um, 10 of his employees slash servants in one home invasion, um, a brutal machete murder. Um, so those people who are interested in true crime, you can uh, uh, get a lot of true crime uh, details there, but also get a lot of contextualization and discussion of that kind of concept of violence within a society more broadly. Um, and I found some really interesting information that I had not known about, which was the proliferation of um, executions in Mexico City in this era. That's not something that's prominent in the historiography, but actually, which which is very surprising because there were actually about 250 executions uh, in central Mexico City in from 1776 to 1800. So that to me is new information and really should put a different spin on how we view Mexico City in this era. I think. <laughs> and what a crucially important time period to add that information to. Yeah, right, right. It's the French Revolution era and whatnot. So, um, yeah, so I hope people will enjoy that and, and look forward to that book. It's uh, You can get it in pre-order now on Amazon or it's it's coming out with Cambridge. So you can go to either webpage for that just for a little plug. <laughs> well, thank you for the plug. And thank you so much for your time today. Yeah, I really appreciate it. And I, I hope everything's uh, good in terms of our, our length and whatnot.